Shalom. Welcome to the Christchurch Jerusalem Bible Study, where we wrestle with God's Word. For more information on the church, to listen to sermons, to contact us, or to make a gift, visit ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Christchurch Jerusalem, to our evening Bible study. We are in the book of Leviticus, which, in my opinion, is one of the best books of the Bible. And we have uh, we're up to chapter 14. Last week we did 13. So we're sitting in the middle of vicious skin diseases. And we think, oh my gosh, what could we possibly be learning about that? But we had a lively discussion, and uh, there's a lot of things that we can take on board that the Holy Spirit is teaching us through the words of Moses. And so we acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is present. He's with me. He's with you guys. He's with me. He unites us together, even though we're all separated by huge, vast distances. It's the same spirit with the same king. And my gosh, that means we're the same family. And that's a beautiful thing. So we acknowledge that through prayer. Sister Sharon, would you be able to acknowledge God's presence here tonight as we study? Lord, we praise you and thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. We thank you that you are the first and the last. There is no other God but you, Lord. There is no one, there never has been and never will be another God, Lord, that you have established a people and explained its future to us, Lord. And we just praise you for your word, that you are a rock, there is no other, and we worship you tonight, Lord. We bow before you as King of kings and Lord of lords and ask that you come by your spirit, Lord, to each one of us, Lord, cleanse us, purify us. Uh, we confess our sins before you in the quietness of our hearts and ask that you'd cleanse and purify us and use us as a people fit for you uh, to witness and testify to a dying world, Lord, of your love and your savior, your saving grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much. Okay, as is our tradition, a summary from last week. Okay, the notes hopefully will be attached for those in podcast land and everybody else, they are, should be in chat. Uh, a summary from our discussion, uh, Leviticus 13. It was the, the belief of the ancient Hebrews that God, while overseeing the entire world as sovereign ruler, was also intimately involved in the personal affairs of the individual. In Hebrew, it's called Hashgacha Jotit, particular providence in English. God thus both judges entire nations and peoples, but he also recompenses each individual for their individual deeds. So it's both. Misfortune, and in particular, disease, was thus linked to morality and individual sin. In chapter 13, it introduces extensive rules about skin diseases called zarvat in Hebrew. It's usually translated as leprosy in most Bibles. The word derives this translation from the Septuagint which used the Greek word leprous. However, what we define today as leprosy, which is Hansen's disease, is not what is referred to in the Bible as tsarvat. The biblical word is expanded to include not only skin diseases, but also mildew and rot in homes and clothing. The issue facing the Israelites as they are preparing to enter Canaan and establish themselves as the people of God in the land of God is... Where does misfortune such as skin diseases come from? And what are the spiritual implications? The Lord returns speaking to both Moses, who is prophet, and Aaron, who is priest, concerning this matter of skin diseases. Such ailments were thought to be highly contagious, and therefore they were treated in all seriousness for the sake of the community. The person who detects a skin abnormality has the responsibility to come before the priest to be examined. Initial responsibility is born on the individual affected. Severity of potential spread of the plague or skin disease meant immediate quarantine following further assessment. Israelite priests acted as the judiciary in society. They were the lawgivers and judges. And now they also function as a doctor. God was known as the divine physician who could heal. Thus, his clergy were expected to also enact that healing power on his behalf. So if you said, Adonai Rafi, my God is my healer, then his priests were also supposed to have that power. And this is still true today, as it was in antiquity. 
And we see this theological practice continued into the New Testament. Uh, when in James 5, the sick are to be brought before the elders, anointed with oil and prayers offered for healing. Should the sickness be a result from sin, then forgiveness is received accordingly. And this then is the theological question asked by nearly all Jewish commentators. Is there a spiritual link to tzarat, or is it only biological? The Levitical text does not describe a direct link between the skin disease and personal sin. In fact, the word sin is not mentioned in the chapter at all. From the literal text, the skin disease is discussed purely in natural medical terms. Purity and cleanness is the issue at stake. Animals could transmit uncleanness to others only when they're dead, when you touch them. However, humans have the capability to impute impurity when alive. The tension remains between the natural and the supernatural. The priest must examine from where does the disease originate, and this requires investigation. New Testament is likewise ambiguous on the biological and spiritual natures of disease and sickness. Many healings in the New Testament involve the removal of demonic, demonic activity, yet other healings have nothing to do with the spirit world, nor of personal sin. And we have already noted the James passage to call the elders for prayer. As previously stated, the majority of Jewish commentators did make a spiritual connection to Tsarat in particular with the sin of Lashon Hara, the evil tongue, gossip. Several examples in the Hebrew Bible support this view. The accounts of Miriam and her leprosy in Numbers and of King Uziah and his leprosy through inappropriate incense offering in Second Chronicles. In Job chapter 5, it describes God being the author of both the good and the bad. So does this mean that all evil that befalls us is a punishment from the Lord? Of course not. Does this mean that all physical illness has no spiritual connection? Again, the answer is no. God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, has brought plagues upon his people in the past as punishment and as warnings. How then do we view the modern-day plague, such as corona? The biblical view seems to hold both natural and supernatural origins in tension. The literal text treats the disease purely as a biological phenomena. No sin is mentioned at all. However, all the commentaries, and that includes ancient and modern ones, seek a metaphysical analysis. Any play, then, should be viewed as a wake-up call for the church. We should be active in the kingdom of heaven, seeking to create a pure and unblemished bride for the Messiah. Cannot and should not tolerate sin like we do. At the same time, we cannot blame sin on something that is also biological in nature. Sickness and disease need to be dealt with, and they can be through modern medicine. Eat right, live longer, is not only a truism, but it's good science. To describe this in Jewish thought, the Lord instructed Adam to subdue or conquer the earth. God did not instruct Adam on how to practically do this. God did not instruct Adam to farm the land, nor domesticate animals, nor to develop the food pyramid. The instruction is to subdue. The practical working out is the halakha that we develop. Trying to describe the idea of um, in Jewish thought as to uh, when looking at healing, is everything physical or is it spiritual? To describe it in Jewish thought, the Lord instructs Adam to subdue or conquer the earth in Genesis. But he doesn't instruct Adam on how to practically actually do this. God did not instruct Adam to farm the land, nor domesticate animals, nor develop the food pyramid. That's something humans did. The instruction is simply subdued. The practical working out is your halakha that you can develop. Thus, at the same time as James, James 5 urges us to pray for the sick, 
we see in the book of Sirach, Sirach, chapter 38, that's one of those uh, Jewish books written in the Second Naval Period, of the usefulness of medicine as a healing tool. Or it is written, honor physicians for their services, for the Lord created them, for their gift of healing comes from the Most High. As a side note, the Epistle of James quotes Sirach several times and thus knows this apocryphal text quite well. In summary, Sa'arat or lepras is a biological skin disease that has the potential to spread or to dissipate. The holiness, cleanliness, and purity of God's people therefore requires diligent examination and quarantine. Diligent examination also acknowledges that all things are in the hands of heaven, and thus there may be a spiritual component to the disease. Sin of any form needs to be addressed. Thus, God may be warning people through sickness. Medicine is not to be ignored. It is the gift from heaven. And likewise, the prayer of the righteous man should not be overlooked. The Hebraic perspective is to maintain both aspects in tension. And with that said, we begin uh, chapter 14, which continues the, uh, the discussion on, on uh, skin diseases, particularly now what happens when you get cleansed. So I won't read all of it. I'll read um, about half of chapter 14 and then a little bit on uh, the cleansing of your house. And then we'll see where we go with that. All right. Uh, Leviticus chapter 14. The Lord says to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds and some cedarwood, scarlet yarn and hyssop, be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it together with the cedarwood, the scarlet yarn and the hyssop, into the blood of a bird that was killed over the fresh living water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that, he is to release the live bird in the open field. The person to be cleansed must then wash their clothes, shave off all their hair and bathe with water. And then they will be ceremonially clean. After this, they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for another seven days. On the seventh day, may they must shave off all their hair. They must shave their head, their beard, their eyebrows. Man, this sounds like a, uh, a university party trick. Okay. And, and the rest of their hair. And they must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water. And they'll be clean. And on the eighth day, they'll bring two male lambs, one ewe lamb, a year old, each without a defect, along with three-tenths of an ephah for the finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. The priest who announces them clean shall present both the one to be cleansed and their offerings before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Uh, And in verse 14, once we start killing the animals, this is interesting. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one who is to be cleansed on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot, the same way as you would when you're anointing a priest. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil and pour it on the palm of his own left hand, dip his right forefinger into the oil of his palm, and with the finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. Verse 19, and then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering, make atonement for the one that is to be cleansed from their uncleanness. After that, the priest shall slaughter the burnt offering, offer it on the altar together with the grain offering, and make atonement for them, and they will be clean. If, however, they are poor and they cannot afford, then they must take one male lamb as a guilt offering to be waived We make atonement offering for them, together with a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour, mixed with olive oil for a grain offering, a log of oil, and two doves or two young pigeons, such as they can afford, one for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. All right. And then just going over to verse 33, which is now to deal with 
houses. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron, when you enter the land of Canaan, which I'm giving you as your possession, and I put a spreading mold in a house in that land, the owner of the house must go and tell the priest, I have seen something that looks like a defiling mold in my house. The priest is to order the house to be empty before he goes in to examine the mold so that nothing in the house will be pronounced unclean. After this, the priest is to go in and inspect the house. He is to examine the mold on the walls. And if it has greenish or reddish depressions that appears to be deeper than the surface of the wall, the priest shall go out of the doorway of the house and close it up for seven days. And on the seventh day, the priest shall return to inspect the house. If the mold has spread on the walls, he is the order that the contaminated stones be torn out and thrown into an unclean place outside the camp. He must have all the inside walls of the house scraped and the material that is scraped off dumped into an unclean place outside the town. They are to take other stones and to replace these and take new clay and replast the house. All right. I think that will cover most of what the chapter is trying to say. Aaron, quick question. Uh, which version were you reading? I was actually reading an NIV. Uh, why was I reading an NIV, not my usual ESV? Simply this. When I sat down and turned my um, Skype on, uh, Zoom on, I grabbed the first Bible that was close to me, and it was my NIV. <laughs> Happened to be sitting next to the RSV and the ESV and a Hebrew version and a Greek version, actually. But I just took the – and there's an Aramaic one uh, there as well. But I grabbed Is there a Turkish one? I don't have a Turkish one. Very sorry. I'm working on it. Okay, so as is our tradition, based on a literal reading of the text, is there something there that jumps out uh, as we're going through the cleansing of this thing called uh, skin disease or leprosy, uh, which we noted literally as a reading only has a biological nature, but in commentaries they attach a spiritual nature problem to the to the issue as well now we also end up with um the issue of houses not just people things can start to get the plague so based on a literal reading what jumps out at you guys a lot of laws yeah i know Uh, i guess something interesting for me is that the degrees with which um, the degrees of purity. Uh, the first one, he's has to be cleansed to be re, to re-enter the camp. Then afterwards, uh, pure enough to enter the tent, the tabernacle, and then lastly to be reintegrated into society. So those three degrees of purity in that order um, in the text. Yep, because we would often consider a healing. Once you're healed, you're healed. Uh, you can come and rejoin. This seems to have um, stages still is interesting okay brandon you got a hand raise yeah i was noticing in verse um 34 it says when you come into the land of canaan which i give you for a possession and i put a case of leprous disease in a house in the land of your possession then he who owns the house shall come and tell the priest and i found it interesting that god says that he puts a case of leprous disease in the house and I was just wondering, is that possibly to test their obedience to see if they're going to obey and to actually bring this before the priest and uh, confess that? That's a good question. Um, I don't think the text actually said, it says um, what, the, what it simply says or, or literally states on the Peshat level is that um, who is the source of the plague? God. God which is an interesting theological thought. Like it's the, it's the initial question that we had in last chapter. The man, the man dis- or the guy, the person discovers, I've got some rash on my body. My personal responsibility for the sake of the community is to go to the priest. Priest examines. Literally, the text just says we're just talking about something biological. But because they also believe that God's in total control, is there something else going on? So then then you get into the examination. This brings up right up front, I, the Lord, do this. Whoa, okay. Now, what's what's going on? Mordecai, you got some comment on that? 
Yes, sure. Uh, you know, there's a book written about the Vaikra, Vaikra Rabba. Uh, Vaikra Rabba, uh, chapter 17 says, because the Amorites who were basically living in the land of Canaan before the Israelites had arrived, had hidden away gold inside the walls of their houses uh, and through the Sarat, this malt, basically, we will later see that the, the person who has the Sarat at his house will need to demolish the house. So basically, the Israeli will find some gold within the walls. So that's, that's the explanation of it. That's why it's called good news. I mean, I, I, do, I didn't write this book. It's like, <laughs> that's two, okay. three thousand years of book. Yeah. So. All right. So, so those that don't know, so Vay the Rabot. The, uh, each each book of the Torah has um, a collection of Agadah and, and studies that are associated to it. And um, it's very interesting to see how some of the ancient Israelites uh, looked at this text when wondering, why do we need to rip stones out of our building? That sounds really bad. They put a positive spin on it by saying, ah, it was to get the uh, Amorite gold, which was hidden in there. Well, Rashi wrote this Midrash, as you know, and he probably learned something from the oral Torah, the oral stories of the Exodus, blah, blah. So it might be true, might not be true, but this is what it is. It's, a, it's trying to put a positive spin on an interesting text. It's trying to have the Jews' intention. So basically. Yeah. Okay. I'm curious about verses 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Uh, the priest takes the blood of the offering puts it on the right ear and on the right toe, the big toe. He then takes oil, pours it into his left hand, and he, and he does a very simple process, except he takes the oil and he sprinkles it seven times before the Lord. Okay, And the rest of the oil that's in his right hand, right, he does it on the right ear and the big toe again. Okay, And then he pours it upon the, uh, uh, upon the head of him that is to be cleansed, and the, and the priest shall make an atonement for him before the Lord. It's an interesting procedure because I've not seen this before in any of the other parts of uh, the law. So uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm curious as to, as to why seven times and uh, how, why, do you, why are they mixing blood and oil? That's a good question. It's the, the, what's going on here is very similar, it's not exactly, but it's very similar to the anointing of a priest. And you go, hang on. So how do we go from having the same ritual which anoints a priest for the service of the God to have the same ritual to cleanse a, le- a, a guy with a dreaded skin disease who's been banished from the camp, you know, who's not a priest, who's a commoner, but he's being treated almost in the same way as an anointed priest, which is very interesting. Yes, very much so. Is there some image that 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 where you that you can think of in the New Testament where you take somebody who is lowly, outcast, you know, not part of the family anymore, and then you make him like a priest? You make him like one of the best uh, members of your community. Anyone know uh, a story? The Samaritan, almost the uh, selection of King David. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Oh, of course. Oh, at, at the at the Gihon, Gihon, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so it's very interesting that you take somebody very common, very and you and you sort of elevate them up into this very special way. You go, you've been outcast. You've been you've been separated. You know, everybody has probably. You know, what has this guy done? He's horrible. And then as part of the ritual, which seems like a really strange ritual, why would you want to stick anybody's? Why would you, anyone hear like blood on their foot, on their toe, or on their ear? Like that seems like fun, but there's an honor there somehow. Yes. In a way that perhaps you and I don't know. And for me, I don't understand all the ritual, even though I happen to belong to a denomination that's got lots of it. Um, the, here we have this thing called ritual, and it doesn't seem to have any purpose. Yes. Okay. So, so we have no idea as to why the ear, why the big toe. But it is interesting, the connections that come up with it. Yeah. Yeah, Marty, what's the cultural connection? Is there one, bro? A lot of Jewish commentaries miss over that one. It's uh, unhelpful. But for me, Erin, what jumps out here is that it's being done for somebody being pronounced clean. Mm. And 
to me, that's quite significant because like our Lord Jesus pronounces us clean and then we have this access to God. And so I just see this as the priest now saying this person is clean. And because he's clean, he is now that kingdom of priests to God. He's suddenly becoming this, in God's eyes, he's been pronounced clean to God. And, and it's just this whole thing of cleanliness. He's, he's clean now. Yes. What's interesting is the ritual occurs after you're clean. Yes. You yes. don't do the ritual to get clean. What they do is the priest examines, oh, you are clean. Now let's perform a ritual. And the ritual is very akin to the priestly ritual. Yeah. So the guy, the guy might have even been looking forward to it, right, which is an interesting thing. So, so, so is it in a sense, uh, in, a, in, a, in a weird kind of sense, first that, 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 that uncleanliness, you're forgiven, and then you're made clean? Yeah. The, although let's let's remember let's keep the the word forgiven in close quotes because it's not actually in the text as there is a sin even though everybody talks about it in the commentary um, and so there's that there's the the, the sin idea is, is running parallel but um, literally we're just talking about holiness and cleanliness although yes there's something there about about sin but I really like the idea of being elevated into the priesthood uh, Neville you've got a hand raised uh, yes. The bit that I found interesting was the first paragraph where there's a procedure with two birds and one is killed and the other is a part of a ritual and then it's set free and it's reminiscent of what happens on the Day of Atonement. It doesn't happen very often, this sort of one is become sacrificed and one is let go. Correct. This idea of the live bird being let go is incredibly rare. And again, this has images to Yom Kippur. You're like, what is going on? We've got elevation to priesthood, Yom Kippur. We've got a bird that goes free. And what's the bird washed in? In water. <laughs> yes. And hyssop. Living water. Yeah, living water. So it's a combination of blood and water in, over in the clay pot. So that's also. Yes, it was living water. The word in Hebrew is maim chaim. Okay. It, uh, we translated as like this translated as fresh water. I think the I think the ESV did it as um as running running water. Spring spring water. Oh, yeah. spring water. Okay, well that's not it at all. But it's great. Okay, I guess because springs are, are moving and running and, and and that kind of stuff. And it's it's interesting. It reminds us again when when Yeshua was pierced that out of his side. Uh, the two elements of the two elements, blood and water. So we've got blood, water, living water. We've got a scapegoat. Uh, we've got cleanliness, which have, might have something to do with sin. Um, and then you're being elevated to a priesthood. My gosh, the theology that's just getting coming in here. You think, well, where do they get all this from? And we've got a crimson th thread and hyssop. Yes. So let's unpack those. Well, first of all, hyssop, you know, crucifixion. Sorry? The hyssop appears at the crucifixion, doesn't it? Yes. And at the Passover. And the yeah, Passover. Passover. And, and, and it's uh, one of the, the spices in Zata. So people eat it all the time with their bread every day here. But, but in terms of the Bible. <laughs> and King David mentions it in Psalm 51, where he says, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Yes. And it's, so it's, it's linked. Where, where he does he get this idea of hyssop from? Well, obviously, he's looking back into his. Torah tradition, and he's got it with the, the, the blood of the Passover lamb. He's got it here with the, um, the idea of cleanliness and which spiritually gets associated with the worst of sins in Jewish tradition, which is Lashon Hara, okay? And uh, although idol worship actually is the worst one, but, but one really other big one is, uh, is the, the bad tongue. And, uh, and then... Put, it, it ends up becoming part of a of the his his psalm of atonement of his a prayer of repentance. Um, scarlet yarn, Teresa, you have a comment on scarlet yarn? No, but it, it I I've just been thinking about that. There it must have a meaning, and I, I'm sure it does, and I can't remember where from, but it just hit me. Scarlet, you know, the yarn, the thread, and the and the hyssop as well. There's a reference to Rahab in Jericho. That's it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Isn't there also a tradition whereby the thread was 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 from the I think the scapegoat was put onto the temple doors, and if it turned white, then it was okay. Something like that. 
Mm-hmm. It was it was accepted. Yes, exactly. Andrew, you're up. There were three things. I don't know if I can remember them all. Uh, the, the first was the, the idea of the priest, the cleansing as the priest, as in preparation for the priesthood. And I was thinking of a verse in Exodus. I can't remember where it is. But the Israelites are called to be a light to the world and a nation of priests, which is very similar to the concept we have in Peter of us being called a royal priesthood. So perhaps it's not too surprising that this leper chap was cleansed as, a, as part of a priest, priestly ceremony. The um, reference to the nation of priests is Exodus 19. 19.6, yeah. Nine, it's where um, God brings his people to Mount Sinai and he introduces himself. They've never met him before, okay, apart from witnessing Moses do all kinds of miracles. Now we're actually getting God um, speaking to them directly and he says, you are a nation of priests to me, which is um, incredibly powerful, even though we will, we will then turn around and make priests and Levites, but the nation will be a, a holy priesthood, but a certain tribe will also have priests. So the same theology is which you find in the New Testament in, in the book of Peter, where the people of God are a kingdom of priests, yet we still have pastors and shepherds, okay? So we can still have uh, Peter, uh, Paul can say, we need to choose shepherds amongst ourselves, as opposed to saying, no, you're all priests. We're going to become brethren. Okay, no need to have um, shepherds. You can still have them, even though you can all be shepherds at the same time. So it's a very interesting thing. But we are cleansed for the priesthood, which is a really cool thing. Could I just make a second comment quickly? Oh yes, go right ahead. <laughs> I was on the the, the sarat, which is a skin disease. It's a disease. Oh, it's a phenomenon on the outside of the building. It's on on the clothing. So these are all things that are on the surface, and that part of the priestly function is to, main, is to maintain boundaries between pure and impure, and maybe there's something, some reason for the, uh, the three items being on the, on the outside or on the boundary, um, so to speak. I think I, that's a good point. Let's actually explore that one a bit. So skin disease, it's on the outside of your skin, on the outside of your tent, your clothing, your building wall. The purpose of the priest is to see how deep is it getting. If it's just surface, your skin, okay, biologically, well, it'll grow new cells and it'll push it away eventually. Okay? It'll, it'll, it'll overcome whatever the issue is. But if it's not, it's deeper, then it won't, it won't be able to overcome it and it will eventually succumb and, and it might spread, in which case it's something worse. So that's the biological aspect to it. Now, think in terms now of the Hebraic thought where they applied this spiritually. How deep can sin go? Sin can be a little bit surface, a little bit light, okay, not so bad, but how, how far can it go? To the heart. I mean, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right. And, um, and so the purpose was to see how deep is it. Now, if we're going spiritually, how deep is the sin in our community? Do we need, do, what, what, what do we need to do to get rid of the sin here? Do we throw away the, the barrel of apples? Are we just being able to get rid of one or two? Um, you know, do we chop an arm off? Or we, can, we, can we just excise a little bit? Like what's, the, what's the intervention um, uh, process? Um, of course, because we're speaking spiritually, repentance can go very far, right? When David writes Psalm 51, what's his sin? Adult, murder or adultery? Yes, murder and adultery. I mean, like this, we, we haven't been able to really top that on, on much, okay? You know, we're pretty much um, done pretty bad. And, but the, 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 we have to remember that as uh, both in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament, mercy triumphs over judgment, which is an absolute treasure. Of the kingdom of heaven. And blessed, blessed, blessed is the person whom the God does not impute sin, right? Yeah. Amen. That's what David also said, I think. So. Yeah, amen. Okay, Teresa. In, in my Chumash, it refers to the crimson thread and the hyssop, and it says the thread is the wool dyed with a pigment made from a lowly creature, a type of insect or snail whose identity is unclear. Thus, it symbolizes the penitent's newfound humility. 
because it's talking earlier about how um, lashon hara is you know comes from a sort of arrogance, yeah. and then it says um, hisop, a lowly bush, symbolizes the same idea of humility. Thank you. Um, and that that's Rashi. That's Rashi. Sure. Where a lot of these comments are coming from, remember, guys, is the idea of looking at the spiritual application of skin diseases coming from one of the big ten deadly, uh, seven deadly sins, the Roshan Hara, uh, the evil tongue, and then um, because that's pride and uh, lying, well, actually it's telling the truth but in a ho- very hurtful way, um, the, uh, the, the, the opposite is your healing. Humility beats pride and uh, uh, blessing trumps a curse and saying good defeats evil talk, you know, these kinds of yeah. uh, things. Okay. I also like the uh, Scarlet uh, link to Rahab, who shelters the spies and joins the Jewish people, where you have um, the Gentile inclusion you know, and the, uh, the idea of God-fearer um, appear, which is really quite nice as well uh, into that idea any thoughts on the idea of the purpose of ritual i'd just like to butt in in for a minute that in my my humash it talks about why they put blood on the the ear the toe and the um what's the other one um Anyway, it's, um, it explains that the blood is placed on these three body parts to symbolize henceforth that the Mazora must improve himself in mind, meaning the ear, deed, the thumb, representing action, and effort, big toe, representing forward movement. Interesting. Uh, that's actually part of um, the ritual. So I'll, I'll go into the ritual question. <clears throat> It's a strange collection of material, okay, which seems to come out of the blue. And it's not magical because the cleansing happens before you bring out all these objects. This is part of some sort of ritual. Um, So the question is, well, actually it's twofold. Why do you think there is ritual? And then put your Jewish caps on and ask the opposite question. What happens if you don't have ritual? Perhaps that might be the way to start answering the question. So we have a guy being cleansed. He has experienced uh, separation, quarantine, perhaps some ridicule, perhaps definitely some shame. It's interesting that you have to bring lambs you know, for as part of your sacrifice. These are expensive objects. If you've been kept outside the camp, what is one thing you're not going to be able to do? Make money. Make money, correct. So guess what you're not going to be able to do? You're not going to be able to bring a lot of lambs. And, um, and so even though there is this uh, form that says you must bring lambs, the actual condition itself puts you in a place where you never, ever, ever could pay the price so if you couldn't pay the price who does pay the price for you any ideas god could be could be god could be family member could be the community okay there was um there were sometimes uh offerings that were collected by the temple that were set aside for the poor not for the poor as in here have a lamb go eat but rather we know you can't make the required sacrifice, but we have provided the payment for you, okay? which is an interesting thought in and of itself as well. But put that aside, what happens if you get cleansed and there's no ritual, right? When you read the text, you read the text, you read the words that are there. When doing Jewish exegesis, what you do is you close your eyes and you put everything aside and you look for the things that are not there, okay? That's a, that's a nice classic way of looking. So what happens if we don't have ritual? What happens to us? Well, we no longer have the reminder, the habit of remembering what happened. Okay, interesting. No reminder? Okay. The evidence of being clean. No evidence? Okay, no evidence of being clean. You're just clean. People won't know. Other people, the Lord God won't get the glory. We're outside the law. We haven't, we haven't, we haven't satisfied the law if we aren't cleansed. 
Exactly. You don't really know if somebody's clean or not, and they can contaminate the um, the space, the different spaces. Okay. So there's no satisfaction according to the law. There's no witness. There's uh, how do people uh, be able to give God glory? God doesn't have a a, a witness to it. Uh, there's no reminder of the actual healing. Uh, some of the other things. Anything else? Yeah. There's no inspection. I mean, there's no reassurance that actually someone has paid attention to this issue. Ooh, there's no reassurance. Okay, Let's, right. Uh, think think on this in our modern world. You know, when when someone's gets forgiven, if it's just so easy to say, "You're forgiven. You're forgiven. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven." It draws a line under it, doesn't it? And it allows you to go back into the community. It, uh, yes. It adds, it definitely adds weight. And without it, it can make everything seem quite trivial, very light, largely superficial. And quickly, as Damara said, you quickly forget where you actually came from. And sometimes, uh, what, what do we call it? What's, what's in, in Christian speak? Okay, guys, what do we call this in our modern phenomena? Grace. Repentance. Okay, well, that's yes, but what do we call it when it's... it's um, We're suffering, aren't we? Yeah. Well, lightweight. Lightweight. Okay. Yeah, it's cheap grace. That's it. That's the word I'm looking for. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> cheap grace. Yeah. <laughs> we can... We can make it, it. It's not cheap. It was uh, the, our, our redemption was incredibly costly, was it not? <laughs> yes. Yes, it but was. Eric, my, my question in this would be this: Is yeah, we talk about ritual. We know ritual is one of the only ways of, of, of a safe way of coming to the Lord's presence. Okay, but the point is, with Lord Jesus Christ, I can have uh, a salvation uh, situation at home by myself. The Lord can save me, right? Absolutely. There is actually no ritual involved in that salvation process. I'm cleansed by the blood of Lord Jesus Christ once for all, right? And from there on, the only evidence that's going to come out of me is the fruit, right? Sure. But what, what, what my puzzlement is here is we're going through all of these rituals in the law to get to this point of cleansingness of, of salvation, if you like. Uh, but yet with Lord Jesus, there is no ritual. So where do we connect in there? Well, there is ritual. Sir? Yeah. What do you do? Yeah, you, 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 you repent, you acknowledge baptized. Lord Jesus Christ, you get baptized. Yes. That, yeah. So ritual doesn't have to be long involved, three hours long. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, it, it can be anything. It could be the same two sentences, you know. Hi, how are you? That's a ritual. That's a ritual greeting we say to each other every single day. And uh, it can be as short as that. It can be as sweet as that, and when it's not said, it can be. It can the silence can be can be deafening, and so it's not that. Um, it's not that it has to be long, but there is a meaning to it. And what we find in the text is I'm just trying to find the what is the meaning to this ritual because initially the text gives you no reason for it, and so in 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 the the way we try and dissolve a, or discern a meaning is you say well what happens if it's not there. And so here we have our little hero. He's got a skin disease. He's been separated from the community for however long. He's become, he's become cured and he has this ritual. And the ritual gives glory to God. People are watching. There's a, it's not something silent. And, uh, and so we can, in the New Testament, when Jesus heals lepers, they probably went and did this. Okay, very public. I thought of thinking, of going, wow, my gosh, this guy's actually got healed. Because uh, you can't do this unless the actual healing has been done. And it involves things which seem out of the blue, living water, live, live, sac living sacrifices which are not killed. They are then set free as scapegoats and the offering of atonement. And then there's this interesting part of the, the deal. Shave everything off. Okay, wax yourself central. Where's our Brazilian lady? Okay, go, go, go crazy, people. Shave your eyebrows. I mean, my gosh. I mean, this is a thing you did when you were in college, okay, <clears throat> when your friends were sleeping. This is actually a biblical thing. 
Um, what, why would you thinking have to do this aspect for it? Well, two words keep coming to mind, and that's obedience and restoration. Okay. It's, the, you know, the obedience of the ritual, but then the restoration of the new person. You know, it's so the old is gone, the new has come. Similar to, you know, what we hear in Paul talking about baptism and, okay. and uh, Romans 12. Yep. Yes. Oh, yeah. Obedience. Yeah. Don't get me started on obedience. Okay. Apart from to say that um, the, the ritual is not what made the guy clean. The guy's already clean, right? That, that's, that's the thing. It's not magic, and there's no sort of formula that says, okay, if I do this, then the Lord will do something for me. No, don't work that way. It's a, it's a public. It's community. There is an obedience aspect. The priest is being obedient. The man is being obedient. The community is being obedient. A lot of things going on. And then there's the restoration. The man is brought back into community. He's allowed to rejoin his tent. Okay, there is this level which uh, Yvonne noted before. There, you know, it doesn't always go instantaneous. Like we're back in, uh, you know. Uh, Hitting, hitting 60 miles an hour, there, is, there are steps, there are baby stages, which we all note in our own community. When people are being restored to a community, let's all be honest, there are stages. Yes? You know, look, you know, if a mass murdering criminal uh, gave his life to Jesus, that's fantastic, but we're not going to make him the youth pastor and send all our kids on a boy camp with him, are we? No, we are not. Okay, um, there are some things that you do and some things that just take a little bit of time. And um, you see that in the, in the, in the Bible as well. It's um, a very practical book. But let's go back to uh, we shave all our hair. What's rem- what, 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 uh, why would you shave all your hair? Like, what's the deal with that? I think it makes it uh, washing more effective when you haven't got, you know, these ultra-effective detergents. I mean, if if you if you you shave all your hair off, and then you can pretty well wash yourself thoroughly, uh, just using water. So there's that's the biological aspect for it. Yes, the practical, physical, biological way. It's a sign to everyone else. Okay, sign to everybody else. Okay, yeah, the guy definitely not going to look like everybody else. He's not going to have beards. He's not going to have eyebrows. That's going to look really weird. Or hair. Okay. Um, it should be uh, very funky. Well, it's actually a sign that that guy is doing something with or about God. Basically, when you shave your hair in the Old Testament, it's like you have a wow, it's like you're a Nazarene or something like that. You see it in the Acts too, you know. Um, yes, yeah. Paul does it. That's correct. Yeah. Well, hair ma- made a difference as well when you look at the um, Samson with his hair. So hair must have had a significant role in how you um, look. Oh, speaking yes. of Samson, where's our Nigerian Samson? He's not with us today. Yeah, we, 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 miss, we miss Nigeria today. Okay. Yeah. Keep him in our prayers. So there is a sign to the community. It's very physical. Okay. Um, going on the spiritual level, what does um, walking around with no hair mean? You're not covered. Humiliation. Exposed. Okay. Some penance. Penance. There's definitely a, a heart side there. Um, when babies are born, how much hair do they normally come out with? Little or none. Yeah. yeah. It's a, one of those born again ideas that um, you take everything off, living water, restoration, brand new. You're like a newborn baby. It's a spiritual side. The, the physical side is also very, very applicable. Well, it's just easier to get rid of all contaminants. We can check every bit of your skull now to see if you've got uh, diseases. Okay, it's uh, also incredibly physically practical. Yep. Both aspects uh, as well. David, you've got your hand raised. Oh, it's me, Erin. Uh, what I find quite fascinating here is that in this whole law with leprosy, whether it is the disease in your skin or in your house or wherever. Um, there's no distinction between male or female. Oh, good point. I didn't notice that before. Well done. Yeah. Nice. No distinction between male and female in, in, in this, uh, which is very interesting. Yes. So uh, if you're being anointed like a priest, 
your social rank isn't in included, your tribal rank isn't included, your uh, uh, sex isn't included. That's interesting. Oh, sounds like my favorite verse, Galatians 3. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thanks for pointing that out. Okay, Sharon. Yeah, that's good. Okay, Teresa. In the Samson Raphael Hirsch, his commentary, he's talking about the cutting of hair. And he says, hair is intended to protect the body and shield it from the effects of the outside world. It is the material that insulates the body. Stripping a body of all hair exposes it to the effects of the outside world. For this reason, um, it's well suited to awaken the heart and to turn away from isolating selfishness. Interesting. In modern day um, marriages in the Middle East here, both in Jewish and in the Arabic worlds, when people are um, uh, heading towards their uh, wedding day, it is a tradition to go have a waxing party. Did you know that? No. Yeah. And... Um, Something about there is that there is this thing about getting rid of all hair. Okay, is that 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 it's just um, it contains all the impurities of the body, including sin. And so on your wedding night, you want to be clean and new and fresh and uh, all that sort of stuff, um, uh, which is very yeah, very interesting. Oh, go, Patty. You're making comment about the the, the hair. I was <laughs> I was just wondering. So then why do women have to like cover their hair? Like in you know, Catholic church, they put the little mantilla on and, and like, so is, is it a, I, I mean, is it, you know, what is that reference to hair? Uh, that's a reference to something Paul wrote. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I'm not aware that they do that anymore in the Catholic church, but the Jews cover their heads, don't they? They do because one of our, my husband's, uh, goddaughter got married in a latin catholic church okay maybe not not in this country not that was like a year ago yeah you're not in the uk depends on where you're from like orthodox churches uh do it uh jewish communities orthodox jewish communities cover their hair arab communities cover their hair covering your hair is actually quite it's actually done probably by more people than we would actually think in if we took numbers around around the world the Holy Roller Church, definitely. Uh, Andrew, I got a. You're up. Yep, I was just going to reference uh, when Jesus heals a leper. Maybe more than one healing, but certainly the first time he heals a leper, he tells the leper to go to the priest and and deal with his shame or whatever it is. But the leper doesn't. He goes off to the community without going through the ritual. You ask. What happens if we don't go through the ritual? Jesus is then unable to go into that village. He has to go off to a remote place. Interesting thought. Hmm. That was one thing. The other thing is this seems to be a, a whole exercise in shame. The leper's been put outside of the camp. He's maybe, we don't know how long he has to be out there. He, he lives in a very embarrassing, uh, perhaps degraded sort of environment. Uh, healing from shame. It just happened with one quick you're healed sort of thing. Healing from shame, as, as you've been noting, uh, is a process. It requires a process. Yeah, thank you for that. Healing does take a process. And for let's all admit, in our own communities, when there are those being restored to our community, it takes time. And uh, we're going to have to allow them the time to work through. Yeah, work through. Healing that. from shame, particularly. Where one has been shamed requires perhaps more a process of healing. Probably, yeah. And you can see it here in uh, in this part of the text briefly, but it, it's there, and that's how nice. Yvonne? Yeah, it reminds me of the, the whole shaving and, and, and uh, reminds me of the female captives in Deuteronomy where you, if you see a beautiful woman and you bring her into your house, you know, the shaving of the head and paring the nails and taking off the clothes and then you know, lamenting for her father 30 days. I'm wondering if there's anything that could be a parallel to draw out of that. Mm. Well, the, the Humash, again, the Humash speaks about the shaving. And it says the shaving must be done by the Kohen. He shaves all the hair anywhere on the outside of the Mazora's body. The verse mentions only the head, beard, and eyebrows because these three areas of hair symbolize his sin. 
The head represents haughtiness since he considered himself better and more worthy of respect than those he maligned. The beard frames the mouth, which spoke the, which spoke the gossip and slander. The eyebrows represent the base trait of jealousy, uh, which motivated him to destroy the reputation of others. Mm. So again, the, the Chumash is, is, is um, yeah, taking it into the, the idea of the disease being a reference to some sort of sin, okay? and um, which is interesting. Okay, I want to leap into the last 10 minutes or so of our discussion into the house idea, okay, verses 33 and on. So not only do people become defiled, uh, but also cleansed. And it's talking about clean, cleanliness, cleanness, not sin. Okay. Uh, so can buildings. And um, in this case, as uh, we mentioned at the beginning of, the, of our study, Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron, when you enter the land of Canaan, nice phrase, what's it not called? Okay. It's not called the promised land. It's not called the land of Israel. It's not called the land. It's actually given its uh, name, the land of Canaan. And um, that, I, that I am giving to you as a possession. Okay. This is um, uh, which God, which we were in our big discussion through the book of Moses, uh, uh, Deuteronomy. Um, the God gives the land. It's his to give and he gives it as a, uh, as a possession. And, I, and when I put a spreading mold in your house, okay, so God gives the land, he gives the property, but he also gives the plague, right? God is in control of the good and the bad, not Satan, right? The, you don't turn around and go, uh-oh, I've got a problem here. The devil, the devil made me do it. I shall only blame the enemy. And uh, uh, as though he's incredibly powerful. He's, he's got some power. Let's not pretend he's not a roaring lion, but he's also uh, subject to the Almighty. So it created an interesting theological point for our Israelites and also for us, and uh, we should discuss it. Okay, so Mordecai, you're up first. Yeah, um, we are talking about like mold. That's what it's called in English. And according to Talmud Sanhedrin 71a, this mold never existed and not destined to exist. It was stated for the purpose of edification. Um, so historically, most likely Israelites didn't see this mold in their houses, according to Talmud. So, okay. So does everyone understand what, what um, Mordecai just said? That in a Jewish commentary, when they were looking at this, they were going, oh, my gosh. Really? Did God actually physically do this? Okay. Ah, no. But it teaches us that God is in control of good and bad, but he didn't actually do that kind of stuff. Okay? That's, that's how the, the um, Jewish commentary reads. And that was uh, Sanhedrin, what, verse 71? Yeah, 71a. In verse 35, you know, he says something like a lesion has appeared to me in the house. Again, we see that the Kohen is the one who make the decision once again. So like Kohen was a, like a superman at that time. So was a doctor, a religious leader, and now a mold expert. Yes, that's right. Yeah, he was a yeah, mold expert. So the priest <laughs> comes, yeah, and uh, initially does some quarantining, gets people out of harm's way so that, that uh, unholiness cannot spread because um, who lives in our community? Who, who lives with the Jewish people? God. God, the Shekhinah, the, the presence of the Lord. If the presence of the Lord is in our community, that's pretty special. And so you want to keep the, the community holy. And sometimes we think too little of this. We call this, you know, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Great. Well, do you actually honestly believe that? You know, if you actually lived as though the Holy Spirit was inhabiting your body, shouldn't you take care of that? in all manner of not only just diet and exercise, but in spiritual health and well-being and in the way you bless others and treat others and receive fellowship and share. Um, and, but you can see it here is that they take it so seriously, oh, my gosh, something's wrong in this building. Well, as opposed to just, eh, that'd be fine. It's no, 
this is holy. We're, we're, we're supposed to be a holy people. The land is holy. God is holy. So even our houses are holy. Can I say one more thing about this? Yep. And also some other sages uh, consider it as like an afflicted house, and they call it Chabad Hamnuga, uh, and they consider it as like a moral warning rather than a natural natural disease. So it was like a uh, warning from God to whoever has this mold in their house. Cool. Okay, I'll make a note of that one. Uh, David or Vida? Yeah, uh, I'm following, actually, I think Amati was pretty much going in the direction that I was asking is the Lord says, I w- and I put this, this is plague on your house. I mean, I see that I, I give the moral warning, but is, could it be also that there's something wrong with the person that takes the house? Or is it that a house that they walk into that was already there? You know, yeah. as in maybe the Canaanites were there and the Lord says, hold on a second, there's a problem here, yes. right? Yes, very good point. Yes, correct. Because, because that's right. When we're in the wilderness, we don't have houses. We have tents, which, we're de- which we dealt with last week in terms of leather and cloth. Here, we take over houses which we didn't build. In fact, that was one of the warnings. When you take houses you didn't build and you eat from vines you didn't plant and, uh, and from crops you didn't sow, you might forget God. Don't do that. So. Perhaps the warning, perhaps the, this is the moral warning, yeah. Also, maybe it's, it's also a, it just, it's a reminder as, as you would have to keep your own house clean and richly clean, you know, a reminder to, to clean to make the Lord's house also richly pure. So as you take care of your own house, you need to make sure that you take care of the Lord's house. Okay, I like that too. God's house, own house clean, God's house clean. Yeah, okay. Because um, it would be very hard if we could only keep God's house clean yeah. and, um, and then our own houses are not. And unfortunately, we can probably all point the finger at um, members, parts of our church where we, we, we haven't really kept our house in order, and, uh, which is a bit, bit of a problem. Yeah, the, uh, the, the solution is, yeah, don't buy a house. <laughs> that would uh, just, just stay in the tent. People. No, no, somebody wrote that you buy a house now and you get inspected for mold and all kinds of things. And I said, don't buy such a house. Yeah, that's right. Although because of the damp in this part of the world, oh, my gosh. You never know who lived in that house, right, Reverend? No, you don't. You really yeah. haven't got a clue. Okay, is there anything else in relation to um, God bringing a disease to property, whether that be a physical thing or a spiritual thing or a moral compass wake-up call or a, uh, a result of, of sin. So looking at to see how we can apply this to our lives today. Okay? It's not that we're probably all waking up in the morning and going, oh, my gosh, my bathroom's got mold. This is definitely a plague from the Lord. And uh, why would he be sending this to me? I shall quickly inquire uh, of the Holy Spirit and see what's going on. Um, okay. Michelle has a good idea. She says, don't get attached to your stuff. Okay. That's our, our moral and spiritual learning. Like, well, you don't want to get attached to your stuff because you're going to have to tear it down. Right? Good point, though. You know, can't take any of this to heaven. Good point. The, the Lord says if you, um, if you build, uh, you, about you labor in vain, wait. Unless the Lord builds a house, you labor in vain. Oh, that's not a bad point. Yes. Okay. Perhaps there was a bit of pride here. Like, oh, I've done this great house. I've built these big barns. And God's like, oh, it doesn't work that way, people. (laughs) So, yes. Okay. Good one. All right. Rocky, you've got a hand raised. Yeah, Aaron. I was thinking if uh, our bodies are the temple, then the abomination desolation has already happened by people taking uh, and impurifying their blood with the jab (laughs) (laughs) oh man okay (laughs) okay Uh, I don't really know how to respond on that one buddy Uh, the Lord the Lord gives people the gift of medicine and vaccines aren't the mark of the beast Okay. okay, Teresa. Thank you. I'm just reading one of Ramban's comments um, about general sar- sar- afflictions. 
like all other divine punishments, for selfish behavior and gossip. So God mercifully starts by afflicting the property. And then if um, there's no improvement, God, he then um, you know, gives the victim. He, in other words, he works gradually through until it gets worse and worse. It hits uh, the property first. And then if there's no repentance, then it actually gets on to the person and so on. And that reminds me of, um, and I haven't got, I'm not very good at holding verses in my head, but it reminds me of in Isaiah where he talks about, you know, I, I planted this garden and he gradually takes down, just gradually moves in. He takes down the outer wall first and he takes the watchtower down and so on. And, you know, it's, it's God's merciful way of dealing with these things. He, he doesn't hit us straight away it's it's he works gradually to try and get us to repent and that that i think is what ramban is saying here i'm just trying to summarize it quickly okay yeah it's like god's kindness leads us to repentance eh? he he woos us to love him you know yeah Teresa, it sounds like you're referring to isaiah chapter five about the vineyard is that is that right yes mm -hmm. thank you yeah all right guys so in summary the text describes something purely physical. All commentaries describe something spiritual. So we have to make sure that both things track together. Thank you for listening. Our sermons and Bible studies are on all your favorite podcasting platforms. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. Sermons can also be found on YouTube. Follow us on Facebook for alerts on live streams. If you are blessed by these teachings, please prayerfully consider giving toward the work of Christchurch. Visit ChristchurchJerusalem.org. Blessings from the City of the Great King. <laughs>